Chapter Thirty Four, Part One of Margaret Sanger by Margaret Sanger. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirty Four, Part One. Senators, be not affrighted. Should the federal laws be changed? was the subject of my debate with Chief Justice Richard B. Russell of Georgia, who had had eighteen children by two wives. I always welcomed a debate, although after the first few years it had been almost impossible to find anyone to defend the other side, and therefore I was pleased to be called to Atlanta in May 1931 for this one. The old judge white-haired and with white eyebrows and mustache, his figure still erect, fixed me with a glance, sometimes satiric and sometimes flaming with the rage of an Old Testament prophet. He talked of the sacredness of motherhood, the home, and the state of Georgia. We don't need birth control in Georgia. We've had to give up two congressmen now because we don't have enough people. If New York wants to wipe out her population, she can. We need ours. I can take care of all the children God sent me. I believe God sent them to me because they have souls. Poodle dogs and jackasses don't have souls. I have obeyed the command of God to increase and multiply. His children and their wives and their relatives, occupying several rows of seats down front, applauded vigorously. On the train coming back, I bought a paper and noted with surprise that I had been awarded the American Women's Association Medal for Accomplishments on Behalf of Women, and was supposed to be receiving it that night in New York. I sent a telegram of thanks to Anne Morgan, saying that I had just learned about it and there was no way of my attending. It was nice to be handed a medal instead of a warrant. At the postponed dinner, organized by John A. Kingsbury, a director of the Millbank Fund, I sat there listening to the beautiful tributes and asked myself, is it really true? Am I awake? or is it a dream? I never thought of the medal as being given to me as a person, but to the cause, the women I represented, and, representing them, went through the act of accepting it. As I was trying to express this, a little woman who used to appear frequently on all sorts of occasions came up through the well-groomed audience, climbed to the platform, offered me a bouquet of flowers from the Brownsville mothers. "'You are our Abraham Lincoln,' she said, unconscious of the smiles, amused yet sympathetic of the audience. She left a kiss upon my brow and hurriedly went back to her place. To me, she embodied the spirit of Mrs. Sachs, who had died so long ago. All I was still working for though through channels which had broadened immeasurably since then. In the beginning of the birth control movement, the main purpose had been the mitigation of women's suffering, Comstock law or no Comstock law. Its very genesis had been the conscious, 
deliberate, and public violation of this statute. Later, to change it became imperative, so that the millions who depended upon dispensaries and hospitals could be instructed by capable hands. In 1918, Mary Ware Dennett had dissolved the old National Birth Control League into the Voluntary Parenthood League, which had for its aim the repeal of the federal law. This seemed fine on the surface, but repeal would permit anyone to give and send contraceptive devices as well as information to anyone through the mails, regardless of standards or quality. Mrs. Dennett still looked upon the movement as a free speech and free press issue, just as I had done before going to the Netherlands. Now I considered no one had sufficient knowledge of the possible consequences of some contraceptives to permit them to be manufactured or distributed without guidance or direction. They might kill the birth control movement as well as some of the women who use them. No sponsor could be found until in 1923 Senator Cummins had introduced her repeal, or so-called open bill, in which the lack of safeguards was severely criticized. Therefore, she had had it reintroduced in 1924 with a clause added that all literature containing contraceptive information must be certified by five physicians as not injurious to life or health. This bill, practically impossible of application, died in committee. Since we believed information should be disseminated only by doctors, we had kept very quiet and out of it during those years. But we had our own ideas of what sort of legislation we preferred. When Mrs. Dennett retired and her organization ceased its work, Mrs. Day, Anne Kennedy, and I, in January 1926, went down to Washington on a scouting expedition to take a survey of the mental attitude of congressmen and discover whether their reaction was more favorable towards a repeal bill or our proposal of an amended doctor's bill. We set up headquarters and began interviewing senators until we had satisfied ourselves that personal sentiment was more in favor of our policy. We thought it advisable also to sound out the Catholic stand. Getting together was the trend of the times. Eugenists, the Voluntary Parenthood League, the American Birth Control League, all were trying to meet each other. People of tolerant opinions had always felt the Catholic Church was too clever to oppose a movement that inevitably it would someday have to sanction and the tumult and interference was simply the result of local ignorance and bigotry. If we could reach the scholarly heads themselves, if we could all sit at a table and talk things over, we would find their ideals of humanitarianism were much like our own. Consequently, Anne had an interview with members of the Catholic Welfare Conference, including Monsignor John Ryan, John M. Cooper, Ph.D., Father Burke, and other prelates. 
we thought we would agree on the doctor's bill, that they surely wanted the public safeguarded from the misuse of contraceptives. But they inequivocally set forth their objections. Not even a physician's indisputable right to save lives swayed them. They declared it was their office to see that no social or moral legislation passed Congress that did not conform to the tenets of Catholic doctrine. They would attempt to prevent any such bill from becoming a law. Anne wrote out a report of the interview, including this shocking statement, and showed it to them so that they might have an opportunity to correct it if they so desired. They left it essentially as written. Considering this a fundamental issue of liberty and life not affecting birth control alone, I took the presumptuous document to H. L. Mencken, supposedly the outstanding libertarian in America. He had the power to evoke a response from thinking minds, even though they were rock-bound in patriotic dogmas. He had knocked down a great many gods, chiefly along political and religious lines. Trusting that Mencken would make an effective protest in the American Mercury, I talked to him, explained the situation, predicting that if we let this go unnoticed, we should all have to endure the future consequences. He admitted the Catholic action was brazen, but mentioned the fact that he had too many friends of that faith in Baltimore for him to attack their church. I gained the impression he was out to slash and hit where the cause was obviously popular, but had no intention of leading a forlorn hope or playing the role of a pioneer for freedom. He never fulfilled the expectations I once had of him. He was not a tree-bearing fruit, but a spoon stirring around, very much of a yes, but, uh, he said, oh, yes, that is grand, but on the other hand, there is this to be said for the other side. In our campaign of educating the public in the necessity for changing the federal statute, I began having regional conferences in the East, South, Middle West, West, and linking them all into an organization to support the bill. One of these was at Los Angeles. At first, most of the Westerners wanted an open bill, such as Mrs. Dennett's, and I stood rather alone on the doctor's amendment, which was only approved on the last night of the conference by a very narrow margin. As the people filed out, I saw at the end of the room a thin, almost emaciated woman with gray hair, somewhat shabby, but not unusually so. She held out a bony hand to clasp mine, saying practically nothing, just a word or two, and her name, Kaufman, came to me. I remembered it because Viola Kaufman had been one of the small subscribers to birth control in the past, and I was familiar with most of these names. I thought nothing further of it at the time. Wanting all the endorsement I could get for the doctor's bill, 
and particularly that of the American Medical Association, I made a special trip to Chicago to see Dr. Morris Fishbein, who was a power in that organization. I asked for help or advice, and offered to draw up a bill in any way which would suit them. Dr. Fishbein appeared sympathetic and turned me over to Dr. William C. Woodward, the legislative director. We had a pleasant conversation, and that was all. Though he made no comment as to its merits or demerits, I put the bill on record in their office. Tried and true friends, whose abilities and loyalties had been tested and proved, rallied round the National Committee on Federal Legislation for Birth Control, which established its headquarters in Washington in 1931. Francis Ackerman assisted my husband as treasurer. For vice president, we had Mrs. Walter Tim, who had left the League of Women Voters, a fine speaker, a clear-thinking crusader, a devoted ally of long standing. Tall, large-framed, broad-shouldered, she could harangue audiences in the strong, convincing, and forceful fashion of the early suffrage soapbox days. Nothing delicate or fragile. When she had an idea, it was an idea, and she stated it as an idea. More than once our bank account would have faded to a mere wraith had it not been for Ida Tim's money-raising talents. Mrs. Alexander C. Dick was secretary. She had the old-fashioned head of a daguerreotype, but was thoroughly modern in her verve and gay personality and her quick agility of mind. Since 1916, when I had first known her, she had been really interested in the research end of birth control, and definitely had agreed with the then new war cry that it should be under medical supervision. It was mainly due to her and her late husband, Charles Brush of Cleveland, that Ohio had had from the beginning one of the best organized and conducted state leagues. Kate Hepburn was chairman. In her long public career, she had learned great efficiency, and was so careful of minutiae that she never let our witnesses run over their time. Just as we were swinging along briskly, she invariably tugged at a coat and passed over a little slip. Time up in one minute. Best of all our lobbyists was Mrs. Hazel Moore, our legislative secretary, who had left the Red Cross in the South to support us. Nothing could withstand her indefatigable enthusiasm, and it took a stout senator to harden his heart against her feminine ruses and winning manners. We now began to be initiated into the ABC of federal legislative procedure. After your bill had been drawn up, you had to find a congressman to introduce it. Sometimes he believed in it a hundred percent, Sometimes he believed in the individual 100%. Sometimes he sponsored it only to be accommodating and agreeable, in which case it was called by request, a very weak way since you knew he was not going to fight for it. When introduced, 
The bill was read in the House or Senate, and at once referred to a committee, those having to do with changing a law to the judiciary. Ours was difficult to manage at first, because we were trying to alter several statutes simultaneously, not merely Section 211 and everything pertaining to mails and common carriers, but also laws relating to imports. We had a general principle back of us, but we had to keep whacking off clauses so that it would not be thrown into the wrong committee. If you were fortunate enough to secure a Senate hearing for your bill, the chairman of your committee appointed a subcommittee of about three. In the House, the entire committee might attend the hearing. A day was set, and you began preparing your ammunition. The opposition was allowed an equal amount of time to the second. After the hearing, a vote was taken. If they were against it, they killed it then and there. If they recommended it, it came before the full committee, and, if then approved, went to the Senate or House for debate on the floor. To the frantic, worried, harassed, driven congressman of 1931, the announcement of a birth control bill was like a message from Mars, only less interesting and more remote. The mind of each senator resembled a telephone switchboard with his wary secretary as the operator. All the wires were tied up with foreign debts, unemployment relief, reparations, moratoriums, sales taxes, prohibition, budgets and bonuses, war and Manchuria, peace conferences, disarmament, and the tariff, issues of vital concern to themselves for which they needed every vote, and their principal endeavor was not to cause conflict or get themselves disliked. What chance had we to plug in? When the vigilant secretary found we were not direct constituents, we were told the senator was busy, in conference, in committee, meeting an arriving delegation. Would we come back later, tomorrow, next week? Always we came back promptly and on the dot. For months it was almost impossible to see any of them. Often as many as forty calls were made, and if we succeeded in getting two interviews, we considered that a good day's work. When finally we did reach them, few of the younger, still fewer of the older senators, knew what we were talking about. When we were able to make this clear, young and old alike, just as in the state legislatures, were full of fears, fear of prejudices, fear of cloakroom joshings, mainly fear of Catholic opposition. Though Senator Norris had approved the repeal bill, he believed that ours had a better chance of passing because antagonism to the former was even greater than in 1926. He himself had Muscle Shoals and the Lame Duck Amendment on his hands and several more pet projects to boot and suggested we get somebody to introduce the bill who would not be up for re-election. Our choice fell on Senator Frederick Huntington Gillette of Massachusetts, for years Speaker of the House, and now about to retire. He was a gentleman born. 
gray-haired, typically New England, without children or any particular philosophy regarding birth control. Our southern helpers, notably Mrs. J. B. Vanderveer, were persistent and determined. They would not be put off with polite, routine dismissals, but asked point-blank, Will you introduce this bill for us? Senator Gillette, recognizing their earnestness, agreed, but we heard no more of it. When I returned to the next session of the same Congress, someone remarked, Aren't you lucky to have had your bill introduced? What? I stared with wide-open eyes. Yes, Senator Gillette remembered it a few days before the session closed. I called on him at once. Where's our bill gone? It had gone nowhere. We'll just send it around to the Judiciary Committee, said the senator. Norris is chairman, and he's friendly. He'll pick out a good subcommittee for you. We gathered our witnesses together the night before the hearing, which was to be February 13th, and asked, What do you want to say? How long do you want in which to say it? We had eight people to testify in the space of two hours. Moments had to be carefully parceled out to each. We were permitted to deduct ten from our allotment the first day to be used the following one for a rebuttal. William E. Bora of Idaho and Sam G. Bratton of New Mexico had been assigned to us with Senator Gillette, but Bora did not appear. The audience, mostly women, crowded the committee room, imposing with marble pillars, glossy mahogany, gleaming windows. Dr. John Whitridge Williams, obstetrician-in-chief of Johns Hopkins, summed up the medical evidence for birth control. A doctor who has this information, prevention of conception, and does not give it, cannot help feeling he is taking a responsibility for the lives and welfare of large numbers of people. The Reverend Charles Francis Potter, founder of the Humanist Society of New York, discussed the moral phase. The bird of war is not the eagle, but the stork. Professor Roswell H. Johnson, then at the University of Pittsburgh, stressed eugenics. Most intelligent, well-informed people are so determined in this, spacing children, that no laws yet devised succeed in forcing a natural family, which is about 18 children, upon them. Rabbi Sidney Goldstein dealt with religious aspects. The population is not made up of those who are born, but is made up of those who survive. Professor of Sociology Henry Pratt Fairchild spoke from the economic point of view. We human individuals cannot break laws of nature. We can, however, choose which of her laws we see fit to obey. Mrs. Douglas Moffat announced that the 2,700 members of the New York City Junior League were overwhelmingly in favor of the bill. End of Chapter 34, Part 1